The New Disruptors is sponsored by One Pager and by An Event Apart. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that's a mechanoset for building a direct relationship to your audience. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. The New Disruptors is made possible by our sponsors. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more information. I have with me today Andrew Huang, known as Bunny to his friends, who first made a splash about a decade ago when he was a PhD candidate at MIT and reverse engineered the Xbox, a new device from Microsoft that was designed to be a closed system. In doing so, he earned Microsoft's ire, and while they never charged him, and later were sort of embarrassed by the whole situation, and in fact have opened up the Xbox, that changed Andrew's focus in life. His PhD was about computer architecture research, and instead, in the last decade, he's worked more with open systems, sharing information, and some political issues surrounding the control of devices that we own and use. One of his many current projects is an open laptop design where it won't be a cheap product but rather something that anyone can download the schematics for build circuit boards and get components that are interchangeable and make changes as they wish it's it's an interesting idea and we'll talk about it more now andrew lives right now in singapore where he has very cheap 100 megabit per second internet to his apartment and some of the best food in the world and he's talking to me quite late at night his time Uh, bunny thanks for being on the show yeah, thanks for having me. Well, you know, I've followed your career. I was telling you before we recorded the podcast, I was saying that, like, you're almost oxygen for me because I read Boing Boing, I write for Boing Boing, and I'm always interested in the limits of things like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which restricts a lot of really useful and interesting engineering purposes. Um, the DMCA prevents people from doing things with hardware they buy and they own only for the commercial interest, not for sort of piracy or illegal purposes, but only to protect the commercial interests of companies. It seems like you've spent now over a decade kind of walking around that line, starting with the with the Xbox. Did, did you have an interest in the policy side of this, or are you an engineer who fell into the, the policy hole? Definitely more the latter. Um, <laughs> when I... <laughs> Let's see. That's that's a. It's an interesting question. When I when I did the Xbox work, the DMCA was only a couple years old, right? So I wasn't even really clear what it was or what it meant and all these kinds of things. And um, basically, the, the 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 it was sort of a, a shift in, in in telling me the stuff that I did when I was in high school and and earlier in college, all of a sudden became illegal, right? And it was right. stuff that I did that seemed extremely reasonable. It seemed like I wasn't harming anybody. I was working on things that I owned. It, you know, I had a very sort of intuitive sense of ownership and and independence and, and to it, right? And then when I was told that, oh, by the way, we've decided this, to pass this new law and the stuff that you're doing before is now illegal, I was like, well, I don't know. I don't I don't really accept that, right? And I, th- I think this is one of the things that and, and this is the part of the, the democratic process that I think a lot of people are missing is that laws are not perfect and it, and it should be a conversation between the people and the legislators either through, you know, many types of conversation. You, know, you can have conversations with protests through, you know, sort of actions. You can have, you know, sort of civil disobedience. You, you can have revolution. There's all different ways you can, you know, go, come about to have a, a conversation with them. And so 
Um, but, you know, one of the things I want to do is to be, you know, active in the conversation and act in a way that I think is ethically correct, that I think is morally correct, but is perhaps contradictory to the letter of the law. And that always runs a certain risk to it. But at the same time, I think if, you know, we need, you know, lots of people to do these kinds of things that they think are ethically and morally correct, even if the law is not correct, because we have to get together, we all have to participate in the process and make sure that, you know, we have the right legal system for the society we want to live in. That's that's totally fascinating. And, you know, I think that's the – if you're just old enough, which you, which you are and I am, we have that break, right, is that the government didn't try to tell us what – and I say us, both people who are programmers and engineers because I used to – I programmed a ton as a kid in the, in the 70s and 80s and people who are just ordinary citizens. Like before the DMCA came out in 98, I think we all thought the intent might be – to only protect like DVDs, like the the CDs could be, you know, the Sony developed the CD standard and it wasn't thought about in terms of a computer standard originally and CDs can be ripped. There's no encryption on them. You could just take the data off. They're the perfect medium in a lot of ways. And there's been, and it's, I, I think there's a lot of good reasons or a lot of good outcomes from that, but DVDs were going to be designed to uh, encrypt things. And the DMCA was the legal wrapper around the encryption wrapper that said, Hey, if you try to decrypt this, not only are you potentially, you know, enabling piracy, but it's actually this huge federal crime. But that was this dividing line. And if I, and I don't think anyone thought at that time how widely the DMCA would be applied, even those of us who were appalled by its breadth. When the Xbox came out, if I remember right, that might have been one of the first like embedded console devices that was a fairly powerful computer, but was essentially protected from being used as a general purpose computer by the DMCA and, you know, some encryption and so forth, but by the DMCA as opposed to proprietary chips or proprietary programming language or, or something that would prevent it from being used. Microsoft wanted to sell a cheap device they subsidized by you buying games and not let you turn it to another purpose. Is that, do I remember that right? Yeah, that, that's, that's about right. I mean, I think, I think it definitely is one of the first ones. I mean, because the DMCA is only two years old at the time or, two, or three years old when the, when the Xbox first came out, certainly it would fall within the first group of, of equipment that would fall into that sort of test case category. It was one of the first good devices. I mean, the, the right. powerful yeah. enough. It was powerful <laughs> enough that you actually wanted to hack it to do other things because it had all these good sensors and inputs and so forth in it. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, there's actually all kinds of you know interesting motivations. Like people in Brazil wanted to hack it because it didn't qualify necessarily as a computer, which had a huge tariff, and said it was a game, and so like oh. they could buy them much cheaper than a real computer, and so they want to hack and use them as real computers, right? So they, I mean, it had a, had a lot of a lot of interesting capability because of its power and its classification. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right, and, and definitely a small group of people, particularly you know, a lot of the guys in the EFF I was working with and so forth, had worried about the sort of the chilling effects and the, and the overreach, but I think people, even today, still aren't believing it, they don't, they don't really internalize it, and the bigger problem, the more distressing problem is that there's a whole generation of people growing up sort of completely exposed and sort of with the natural assumption that this is the way things work. So they don't even know what they're missing. They don't know what rights they've been deprived at this point of time, right? And I find it really actually very fascinating to juxtapose that against sort of going to China where people don't even, there's not even like a word for the DMC. You say it to the people and they say they've never heard of it, right? They, in fact, they never heard of a lot of these different restrictions. And so they have a completely different system. I mean, it, it, it's sort of the way the 
maybe Western press likes to portray China as this complete wild west of IP and everything gets stolen. And actually, it's there's actually a system. It has to be because people are making money and people are protecting IP. People are doing things. It just works differently from what we've become accustomed to different tools and different systems. But in a society absent of the DMCA, completely different business models are, are possible. Really interesting, disruptive things have been going on inside China that you know, would make people's heads in the United States spin. <laughs> but in the, a lot of that has to do with, well, we could talk about some of this later too in the podcast, is that the adherence to intellectual property rights and the way in which intellectual property rights are enforced seem to be one of the differentiating factors because in America we spend and most of the developed world spends potentially hundreds of billions of dollars or maybe even more, enforcing and licensing rights for different things in the interest of preserving monopolies that are granted to them under a patent or other kinds of intellectual property systems. But there's a lot of money that goes around to sort of to preserve value ostensibly out of innovation. Mm -hmm. But that remains to be seen. So <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But so your work at MIT, this, you were working at the uh, – uh, getting a degree at MIT and the Xbox project wasn't totally – to the side of what you're doing, but your primary work wasn't with it. And now, so you got your degree, you went through the Xbox experience where you weren't actually sued by Microsoft, but you were, you know, sensibly threatened by them and worked out a way to, so that you didn't have to actually go to trial or even get, you know, formally charged. But, and we've seen a number of these cases since too. Did this shift your thinking from working in the field that was, uh, that, that you were in into working in maybe a broader open development field or had you already, you know, was the, the research you were doing just feed into what you wanted to do in any case? I, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I mean, I've always wanted to be in computers and do computers. I think that probably the experience on the Xbox you know, sort of, I mean, first of all, it was a good education in how the legal system worked or, or didn't work in many cases. And I was at a young enough age where I actually had very little to lose. So, the, you know, the, the kind of stance that I had was like, go ahead, take everything that I own. You have a crappy 92 Camry and a couple bottles of beer on my shelf. And that's like, that would, <laughs> like, that would be like my total like life possessions at that point in time. Right? What, what can you do to me, right? Right. Um, you know, as people get older and they have more assets and more responsibilities and children and all that sort of stuff, the stakes get a lot higher and so the you know, the legal threats become more meaningful. But it was, it was a good time to sort of get an actual trial by fire and this sort of stuff because I could sort of, the tuition that I paid or, or could have paid, right, <laughs> was, was relatively affordable. I didn't have much to pay, right? <laughs> and uh, as a result, at the end of the day, I mean, I think it definitely helped me get a vocabulary and a mental mindset to, to ask questions about what I'm doing. Like I myself, like if I'm doing something that says, is this something that makes sense in this context or that context? Is it helping things I believe in? You know, I think at, at a younger age, a lot of times you don't really have, you, you think you have beliefs, but you don't really know you have beliefs until they're really tested, right? Until you're, until you're challenged on them, right? And to mm -hmm. have this happen and have my belief in the goodness of things being open and, and in my belief in what I feel deeply about intellectual property rights challenged at that age, it was good because I actually had to form an opinion that, and that has since sort of influenced my trajectories. And you've had – I think it's fascinating because of that 
well, that evolution is sort of belief and being tested, but at the same time, um, like on the technical side, uh, you know, hasn't constrained you that you've had experience with so many things. You've worked with, I mean, most engineers who would become uh, specialists work deeper and deeper in one field. There aren't uh, a lot of people with deep knowledge in multiple fields, and you've worked in wireless networking, uh, photonic networking, digital cinema. I'm looking at a list of things. You know, you've uh, autonomous robot submarines in your. Uh, and your Wikipedia bio, there, you've worked in a lot of different fields, and a lot of them involve uh, chip development, or uh, you know, or a level up where you're working with developed chips and creating you know subsystems and mi- micro embedded uh, hardware and so forth. There seems to be some kind of theme there. What drives you across developing deep knowledge in in multiple but not entirely related areas? I think ultimately the. When when I was in college, I could have tossed a coin and gone biology, or could have gone electronics. I mean, that mm. was that was I was fifty fifty on it, and kind of the, the interesting difference between particularly computer science, not just electronics, but computer science and biology, is that everything in computers we've like humans have created. It's an entire entirely mm. a construct of our own minds, which to me makes me feel like it's it should be completely understandable. There's nothing in computers that we can't understand because we thought of it ourselves. Someone understood at some point in time to come up with it, so therefore it's hum- within the realm of human comprehension. Biology, on the other hand, is this crazy, like, you know, four billion years of evolution and, <laughs> and these, like, systems with all this sort of stuff going on. And it's, it's the ultimate reverse engineering process, but it's not clear that, you know, necessarily everything can be understood or is understandable within the realm of, of sort of a human comprehension, right? Oh, that's um, great. That's uh, you know, there's a Borges, uh, Jorge Luis Borges stories about like uh, these books that are discovered that change the world, and it's partly because the world is so mysterious and unknowable. I mean, he's talking about the mind of God, but you know, you can also generalize that to biology. Like the, right. the universe is not fully unknown to us, and so in the story, people write books that then change the world so that it's a man-created universe that's all self-consistent and understandable. And oh, it seems like is that that sounds a little bit like the difference between, as you say it there, between biology. And and computer hardware or any kind of technology. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, and, and now the days we have synthetic biology. Biology is becoming more and more of an engineering practice, and, and we're uh. understanding a lot more of it, which is which is cool. And, and I, I and I love to follow biology and dabble in it. But to more specifically to your question about what drives my sort of thirst for knowledge in computers generally is that I like to I have just a, a curiosity about how everything works. Right, and if and if I see something that I don't understand, I like to take it one layer back and understand it one layer down. And so you can keep going down that rabbit hole until basically you arrive at physics, Maxwell's equations, and, <laughs> and yes. you know, you know, solid, you know, condensed matter physics and stuff like that. And this that's kind of where I really taper out there. Like I, that's that's where it gets hard. But the you know, from everything from that level up, you can actually sort of back it up and get a view, the long view on things. And what you find is when, when you actually have, if you can sort of understand the different abstraction layers and operate within one abstraction layer, if there's a problem that happens at one layer, usually it's due to a misunderstanding of how the lower or upper layers were working. Mm. And so actually having this, this depth of knowledge really helps you understand problems in other domains. Like I, I, I oftentimes get questions from people like, how did you know that was the problem, right? Like, how did you look at the circuit board and within like five minutes figure out that was the exact problem? And then 
a lot of times, like in debugging circuit boards, it's a lot of physics, right? Like, you know, where, did, how, where, where is the electrons flowing? How are the magnetic fields interacting? What's going on? What are the symptoms? Are these things happening? And if you have a kind of a deeper understanding of what's happening at, at, a, at one level below, a lot of the problems that happen at the circuit board level actually become very clear, right? And so, and, and that implies going both down and going up, right? And so, you know, probably what, you know, what's happened in the past, you know, couple decades is that the upside, like, you know, going towards, you know, operating systems and social networks and stuff like that, that's beyond me, right? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't have a Facebook account. I don't understand social networking. <laughs> like, all this kinds of like crazy internet stuff is, is kind of beyond me, right? But, you know, sort of from the operating system level down is, is kind of my, my comfort zone. Well, that's, and that's like a classic engineering thing you're talking about too, is the folks listening who aren't engineers uh, or work with stacks. It's like there's those layers of abstraction. It's like some people specialize and they're like, they're at the network layer. Like they don't know how the physical stuff works below it. They don't care how the um, transport stuff works above it to make things move around. They understand this one layer and that's where they do their whole career. And you've defined the top of that stack for yourself where, you know, above this point, I'm not as interested, but you have if you can cross all those layers, it seems like that's where the interesting work you're doing comes from is being able to jump up and down um, between them, not just for troubleshooting, but also to to think about designing systems to go from that very lowest layer up to the highest one you want to work with. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the kind of the irony of this is that, you know, when I was at, at MIT, it's a very competitive school, I realized I couldn't be good at any one thing. <laughs> Everyone was better than me, right? So, I realized the only chance I had to survive was to actually just be a generalist, try to understand as much as I can, get the broad view, and try to look for the little nooks and crannies where I where other people might have missed it because they were completely in one abstraction layer. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of like sort of like you know weeding for low hanging fruit, just looking for like you know stuff between the layers, and and that's kind of where I've always been. Right, it was actually a path of least resistance. That's a great thing, though, too, right? Because you're bringing it together. It's almost like being a multidisciplinarian. You're being a multi-layerian, layerian, um, which which is it's rarer in the engineering world. I wonder if you know you've been involved in the maker movement. I think since the word sort of started to be a term in that field, you're involved with Make Magazine. Does the maker movement encourage that cross-layer communication? It seems like it does. Is is that part of your interest in promoting the idea of people making their stuff for themselves? Well. Why I wanted to promote that is, different, is maybe a little bit of a different question, but, mm. but I, I, I think, I think um, you know, I, I have this kind of hypothesis about how we got to where we are, and most people in computers today are, are I would classify as more on the software side than the hardware side, particularly yeah. in the U.S., and the, the, just simply because of that, people going back to the maker movement and trying to, like, relearn hardware, relearn even carpentry or, or whatever they want to do, needlepoint. It is, it is, again, sort of expanding their discipline layers down a couple layers, right? And, then, and I think that's really good. That's depth that you need to have, you know, a really solid understanding at even one layer, right? So, sure, yeah, I, I think the maker movement is in part about sort of getting that cross-layer knowledge going. You know, I've been on the web for a long time, and I've been using cascading style sheets forever. But you know where I learned the most about it in the last few years? It was at... An event apart. This is a design conference developed and run by Jeffrey Zeldman and Eric Meyer of the great website A List Apart. Now they've been pushing web standards and flexible and responsive design for years, and their event reflects the kind of 
way they think about making websites. They bring together a ton of fantastic people from the web design field, and they're also speakers themselves. You get two days of nonstop inspiration and enlightenment. There's an optional add-on one-day workshop for multi-device web design as well. I know that after I went to one of the conferences in Seattle, I left full of ideas and also practical technical details for improving the way I was building sites. I think you'll like it as well. They have upcoming events all over the United States in San Diego, Boston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Austin, and San Francisco. So there's surely one that's not far away from you. If you care about code as well as content, if you like usability as well as design, this is the conference that you've been looking for. It's an event apart. Let them know that we sent you by following the URL aneventapart.com slash new disruptors. Now let's get back to the podcast. I kind of love it too because of what you I mean, just what you said too is that it's not just learning how to make computer hardware. It, it's there's the maker movement bleeds really neatly into the craft movement. This rediscovery of doing handwork, often where you get to combine some of the wonderful advances of technology <laughs> and manufacture. We, you know, I was talking in a previous episode to um, Kyle Dury who created the type truck and she drove. 40,000 miles around the United States in a couple of years showing people letterpress. She had a, a quip truck and she had press and type and so forth. And people don't know what it is. It used to be a specialized art. It's almost dead. But it's been recovered in part because of the ability to make these rubberized photosensitive plates that you can use with letterpress printing. And it's like what a perfect marriage of – an old technology, the sort of the plates are actually sort of a 1950s-ish thing, and then digital technology for the typesetting, um, right. and you get this great thing. When I look at the Chumbi, not that it has a, a history going back 500 years, but the Chumbi was a – I remember when it first was announced, and I thought, this is something new. And it felt to me like it married a different ideas, like it married – Parts of history, it married craft, it married the sort of open source and maker things and the advantages of like high scale modern manufacture and commoditization of parts. I don't know the origin of the – I mean I know it was premiered at a food camp in this great event that uh, was run by O'Reilly in 2006. I know it was premiered there and I know this wasn't entire. you know, you were involved in this. This wasn't your um, – you weren't the CEO of the company. But how did the Chumbi come into existence? It was a really interesting time to make something – I like that. I don't really know its origin story. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, actually, I mean, the, the origin story is it's an interesting one. Um, so the, the company itself was sort of brought together, nucleated around our CEO, who was also the, the VC who funded it. And he, he ran a fund mm. at the time investing in wireless sort of technologies. And he couldn't find good stuff to invest in. So he'd say, okay, well, we'll make a company and <laughs> invest in that, right? And the, you know, sort of the observation he had was that um, back in the day, if you looked at all like the, the networking companies, Cisco's and Juniper and Ironbridge or whoever it was, like back in the day, all these guys were putting all this money in selling sort of network hardware. But the people who were making all the money were the services running on top of it, like the one-click shopping and Amazon and all that sort of stuff, Right. So the question he had was, you know, there's all these people right around 2006. There's still a question at, at the time is, you know, would every home have Wi-Fi, right? I mean, there was actually debates about this, like very heated debates whether people needed Wi-Fi or not, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I, I covered it very closely, and it was very amusing to me because every day that went by, there were like twice as many Wi-Fi routers being sold or something. It was incredible. <laughs> you know, like every home is going to have it in like six months, so I don't know why we're discussing it. But right, yeah, right. yeah. There's some very heated debates over this. And, yeah, and, yeah. And the, the problem was at the time, the best thing you could do with a, a Wi-Fi router was replace the Ethernet cable to your laptop. It was a very uninspired application. Right? Yes. Um, oh, right, because mobile devices back in 2006, you could get handhelds with terrible battery life. Some of them had Wi-Fi embedded, but I remember I was writing books about Wi-Fi at the time, and like I think the Pocket PC version had it was an 18-step process to get connected to a Wi-Fi oh, hotspot, yeah. and then your battery would last you know 90 minutes. So it wasn't yeah, it, very useful even for a mobile device, a laptop maybe. But Yeah, it was, it was awful back then. It, it's still kind of awful today in many ways, but the question <laughs> was is like let's take the premise that Wi-Fi will be in every house, right? You have internet everywhere what do you do to sort of create a service layer on top of it like what do you what would you want to have and and so so chummy serve was born of that we want to help people have internet in a small embedded package that was like you know family friendly that you could put by your bedside and you could check all your internet anytime you wanted to and and you know we hadn't coined the word app we actually were using the word widgets at the time and we had sort of we're trying to essentially build like an app ecosystem uh, around this platform and and that's how the you know the Chumbi came about. You know, I was talking to uh, Chris uh, Hawker of um, Trident Designs. It makes the Power Squid and um, like uh, seventy other you know household devices. They make the onion goggles, the things that keep your eyes uh, from getting watery. Anyway, it makes a lot of really interesting stuff. We had this great conversation about product design and. I asked him what the next big thing was, and he said emotional technology. And he cited the Chumbi, and I, we talked about the Nasbag, uh, Nasbag tag, mm. that, uh, which right. I have one sitting behind me, the rabbit thing. And the yeah. Chumbi, you know, even though it was developed seven years ago, he thinks that it's really the future for it. It's still unexplored. Can you describe the Chumbi? I realize people listening, we can, I'll put pictures in the show notes. But what was this Chumbi's form factor? The, the the very first Arishin Chumbi was actually a leather bag um, about the size of a large grapefruit. had a three-and-a-half-inch touchscreen on it, and it was designed to be squishable. The, the, the whole idea of the you know, industrial design was to create something that was counter to sort of like the trend of the time, which was being dominated by Apple towards these black, shiny obelisks, right? And to create something that was friendly, that you would want to put by your bed, and that, you know, would be distinctive. And, and so, you know, we actually looked at a lot of different materials. We looked at cork, we looked at wood, we looked at, you know, other kinds of fabrics, you know, TPE rubber, all sorts of stuff. And, and we kind of settled on leather. Actually, as a result, I really have a soft spot now for sort of leather products. As <laughs> it's, a, it's a craft. It's a true craft to sort of make that stuff and, mm. and make it happen. And you now having been you know, inside the big leather shops and, and been with some pro leather, you know, buyers and sewers and that sort of stuff. You know, I have a lot of respect for a really a, a nicely done leather product. See, there's that connection I was saying. Was there a connection that goes back 500 years? No, you found one that goes back several thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. good. But yeah, that was, but you wanted people to make a um, have a physical connection to it. It wasn't a thing that was going to sit there and you were going to admire and stare at. Something people would touch. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you want definitely something that you want to reach out and just squeeze and do something with. It, it definitely tactile and, and sort of and interactivity was very important. We had an accelerometer in there, we had a microphone, we had a bunch of you know you know before people could do you know had had the Wii and could like play around with the game. We you know we were able to sort of do tilt based navigation of of applications stuff like that. It knew if you squeezed it too. Didn't it have a squeeze. That's right. It had a bend sensor on the inside. So when you squeeze the case, it would actually bring up the control panel. 
Oh, I, I, I love that because we've been told it's not – you're supposed to handle technology carefully. And, and seven years ago, even the smallest devices you got were still – I don't want to say fragile, but they were all mostly chunky. I mean the iPhone hadn't come out yet and even their first iPhone was sort of chunky and multi-part. It was – the Trumby seemed very different than anything else yeah. you could get. And I know one of the things that you emphasized, surely, especially in that era – was uh, that there were so many ports. I mean, there was, there was, you could write apps for it. There was a software component, but it was also, there were access to a ton of ports on the thing too, which was weird for an embedded device that was sort of running its own software. Yeah, that, that's true. It had, it had, yeah, a couple of USB ports at the back and audio. But I mean, it could be up. I've got a clock here. I have a Timex clock. And you know how the U.S. government passed uh, rules about daylight savings time a few years ago and they changed the weekend? Yeah. For the, you know, and so everyone else in the world has had it stabilized for a long time. I have a clock with the Timex brand on it and it no longer works. It had a DST setting in it, but it's programmed, hard programmed for the old thing. And oh, there's no. some kind of port in the back. I call up Timex. They say, we didn't make this. We licensed the name to some other knockoff. I get in touch with the knockoff company. They say, there's no way you're going to upgrade that. There's nothing you can do. Your clock is going to be set to the wrong time for a few weeks, and there's nothing you can do about it every oh, year from now oh. on. I know. Oh, yeah. And so that's why – and that's that's an embedded device, a clock, alarm clock is an advice. The Chumvi, you had ports. I could You had Wi-Fi. I could update this thing. That's actually a powerful concept it seems yeah. to me. Well, I'm, I'm one, of, one of the things we actually really wanted to do and, and one of the experiments we're doing with Chumbi was, you know, how could we get more people to rally around the hackability? How can we make the openness a selling point for the for the platform and for the product? And so, you know, when, when the product was designed, a lot of thought was put into how do we balance the constraints of manufacturability, like, you know, we have to keep costs down and so forth, but still keep things open and, and accessible. And so, right. So that's uh, this appeals to, I think, two kinds of people at least. Well, you know, you know the joke about binary. There are ten kinds of people in the world. <laughs> uh, sorry, but there's at least at least two kinds of people. There's people who want to do stuff with it, and there's people who want to have the potential to do stuff with it. Like right. they like the idea that they're not restricted, even if they never get around to doing something. They know that this device isn't going to shut them down when that time comes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's and, that, and that, that's something I'm still starts getting my you know wrapping my head around is is that there does seem to be definitely a, a market of people who really care about that potential. I think I underrate it. Like I I don't think there's many people who care about that, but there seems to be a lot of people out there who who have a mind where you know they really they they may not actually take a product and write an app for it or open it. But the fact that they can open it makes them feel like they own it that much more. And that, that feeling seems to be important to a lot of people, which is which I think is good. I mean, but, you know, maybe, maybe a little cynical about consumer behavior. Well, I wonder, that's, to me, that's one of the reasons Android succeeded is, you know, you could argue the merits of the Android operating system. A lot of people don't like Apple iOS or Microsoft or whatever. They don't like the other operating system. They like Android. But the selling point initially, and I think they still get this idea that it's in their DNA that people think about Android open, was that ostensibly, if you didn't like what came on the phone, you'd be able to change it. You could put in your own new version of an operating system. You could put in your, a different version of Android. Uh, you could change the appearance of everything. Now, in practice, a lot of the phones are locked down. They have ROM, you know, their, their boot locks and all kinds of other things. So, so we know in reality, most of the Android phones sold in developed countries, as opposed to the sort of Android-like ones sold elsewhere that aren't actually officially, you know, certified and as locked down, which is a chunk of the market. But the Android phones sold in the developed world, most of those can't be. But people are buying into that idea that Google and these carriers and the handset makers 
aren't trying to control them as much. Is that, is that what you think plays there? Is that it's it's not that they want to do something with it, but they don't want to have the feeling of being under someone's thumb. I, I don't know. That's a that's a really good question. I I actually don't know what the true consumer sentiment is around there. I mean, I don't know either. I'd love I'd love to know. I hope someone does a big one of those outfits that does the giant surveys would actually yeah. ask people like like Does this matter to you? Does it matter to you even if you're not a programmer that yeah. this device could be modified in some way? Yeah, yeah. Romantically, I wish that was the case. I wish <laughs> that everyone had that sort of like that view that that that, that it mattered to them. I, I you know, pragmatically speaking, I think a lot of people are like, I, I need to make calls <laughs> and, and send texts. Well, you know, where it really comes in is something like a DVD player where you cannot buy a deep. Well, you know, I just got a Blu-ray player. I'm, I'm late to the party because I wanted to pay, you know, $100, not $1,000 for one. And I got a Blu-ray player and it is just loaded with crud. And the way Blu-ray works, they even it's even worse than DVD. There's all of those warning notices and everything else. You can't skip through things. There's so much that's hard-coded in. If I could hack my Blu-ray player, I would hack it so that I could bypass all the crud. And, yeah. you know, obviously yeah. that's apparently not in the – I don't – seeing the warning messages has no effect. I don't even know why they do that anymore. Yeah, they, could, yeah. they could flash it up for one second in your peripheral vision. It would be fine. But the the Blu-ray player I own is totally outside of my control. Everything yeah. it does is outside of my control. It's yeah. really almost like the company has sold me a license to run something in my home under their control. And they're giving me the, you know, they're giving me the forbearance to allow me to own it. Yeah, you know, that, so paid that, for it. that just super bothers me. I mean, for someone like <laughs> like me, I, I, I it bothers me to the point where I don't even use the technology. I, I own zero Blu-ray movies. I don't. You know, I have Blu-ray players simply for compatibility testing with Blu-ray right. players for for HDMI devices. That's the only reason I have them. Right. I mean, it's like it. it but yeah, it, this this sort of stuff is is very irritating to me. And I and I and I realize more and more I, I'm kind of disconnected from the real world, living this. This odd bubble of of sort of you know people look at my computer environment and the things I do and they're like man you're you're just weird man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. But that's the whole thing is you've made the choices of what works for you and what you want to buy into and you, uh, and you may have more you know, sometimes more options. I mean the Blu-ray is fascinating because it's outdated by the time it arrived. It's only advantage is storage capacity and right. density for like HD movies. But I mean you know the bandwidth thing is going to catch up. You're in Singapore. You have. Am I right? Do you have multiple hundred megabit per second connections? Correct. That's right. Yeah. So, and you're paying sixty bucks a month or something for sixty sing a month, which is sixty. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Less than less than that U.S. <laughs> That's yeah. So we're going to come into a future eventually where most people in the developed world and some people in developing countries where they bypassed all the existing stuff will be yeah. able to get the quality of movie they want. So blue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but the lock-in will still be there because we still live in a, a world protected by digital rights management. Let me let me back up to Chumbi for a second though, because I want to talk about Chinese manufacturing and some of the stuff you're working on now. But so the Chumbi had this kind of lifespan where I wonder how it played out. Now, I know you weren't the business guy. You were working on the uh, technology of it and it went through multiple versions. You had, you know, uh, Wikipedia shows five different hardware releases. I don't know if it's accurate or not. If it's not, we could fix it after the podcast. Uh, But you went through all these revisions and it started as a, as a reasonably powerful embedded device um, for its time, especially and became more and more. So did the ecosystem you hoped develop with people developing apps and and doing other kinds of modifications um, over its lifespan? Um, You know, I, I think, so there's there's a couple things on on that front. I would say overall we had really big hopes and expectations that we get a lot of adoption, and the the actual adoption was much less than our expectation. Mm-hmm. But but that being said, the the actual net result was quite good in comparison. One of the key things, though, for 
sort of the hard open hardware aspect is that it just the the the, the time scale for hardware to become adopted and, and brought in and then actually adapted, hacked and, and brought forward again is much, much, much longer than sort of a consumer product can allow, right? Consumer products mm. are trendy and seasonal um and uh, I, you know, open heart. You know, I'm still actually getting emails from people today showing me like awesome hacks they're doing with like chummy derivative devices. Like someone, I guess I, I, I should look it up in my email, but they, they sent me a note recently. They, they bought like like several hundred chumbies off of eBay, or um, oh. they were sold in Best Buy, and and they, and they hacked them to be uh, controllers for the uh, AV systems in their, in their college campus. I'm like, <laughs> this, is just, this is like a few months ago. I'm like, That's this is awesome. awesome, right? This is awesome. This is exactly like, you know, what I had hoped for, except like, you know, several years too late. But, you know. Um, was it, do you think it was, there, was there a cost issue in there too? Because it was, it was expensive, Probably relative to I don't know like a clock radio or something, and this wasn't a clock radio. This is a computer system that yeah. had a million functions. What was the cost a factor in the early days that maybe didn't deterred adoption by the people who that sort of broader range of people you wanted to get it? Yeah, I, I think there's a kind of a it's an interesting question. We launched the device before the economic crisis of 2008. Ah, and, right. And back in that day, people were buying $150 photo frames that had shitty VGA <laughs> giving them to people as gifts and parties. Yes. They were putting yes. them in closets, not using them. That was that yeah. was our price competition, right? And so we were priced according to, you know, giving you the best damn digital frame that you could ever get for a really competitive price. 2008 happened, bomb fell on market, mortgages underwater all over the place. All of a sudden, the consumer expectation for pricing dropped like in half, right, overnight. Became a, it was a bloodbath. Lots and lots of companies went out of business, and we were, you know, basically in the same boat as all those other guys. We had to completely redo the strategy, and we came up with this, you know, the Chumby One, which is, you know, half the less than half the price in the end of, of the original Chumby, and you know, plastic case, more conventional design, you know, more catering to the sensibilities of the time. But you know, at the point we were playing catch up, anyways, to the market. But you know, the the thing about sort of people who do have an interest in hobby use of hardware is that they actually spend a surprisingly large amount of money on it. Like, here's, mm. here's one of the sort of things I, I don't understand. People are like, oh, Raspberry Pi, $25, $35 computer, it's great. Then they go and buy a $100, like, kit of parts to go with it, you know, because because <laughs> they don't want to go and buy the individual parts themselves. Like, you know, and the, the kit of parts is, like, is worth less than the Raspberry Pi, but they spend 100 bucks on it, right? And, but, you know, it's sort of like this sort of romanticism with the idea that the core is very cheap. And then the fact of the matter is that, like, and this is kind of one of the almost kinds of problems of the maker movement in the U.S. is it's it's a very sort of affluent crowd that that oh, yeah. has the money and the time and the ability to afford to be able to get into these hobbies, right? And these people do have the money to spend on things that they want to spend on. It's just a matter of like educating them, getting excited about it, and, and making them want to you know open their wallet on these things. Yeah, there's a lot of discretionary cash in the U.S. for stuff, and I I see that pour. But you know, I see it pouring into the maker movement because you're starting to see more people work with higher end kit forms where they don't have to do as much of the low end work because they don't have the skills or time. But I, what's also interesting, I think the discretionary money um, ties in well with the cheapness of some of the hobbies that are involved. So I mean, the crafts can often you can you know people become uh, yarn hoarders and buy 
thousands of skeins of yarn <laughs> stick right. them in the closet. That's a known phenomenon. But I mean, uh, America and a lot of developed countries are in a weird position in which you can indulge yourself very, very deeply in what should be a, quote, cheap, unquote, hobby because mm-hmm. you can get every kind of thing you need. I look at this on the photographic market and I'm not a professional photographer, but I take some pictures for journalistic purposes and I love cameras. I never bought a $5,000 camera because I'm not – but the prosumer market is huge. There are tons of people who yeah. have no professional interest in photography at all, but they have a, a, a professional level of hobbyist interest and they will drop five grand on a camera and five grand on lenses. And that seems like a unique phenomenon. So the stuff you're talking about too, it's like people are willing to trade uh, money for time because they have the money and they don't have the time or they think they don't have the time. Yeah. Or yeah, I, I don't, I don't fully understand how the market works, but I def- I've definitely seen sort of, you know, you know, and I'm glad people have money to spend on this stuff because I mean, you know, it's the kind of business I'm in these days. But at the at the same time, like you know, I don't fully comprehend. I can't say I fully comprehend the market. It it baffles me. So. But I think if I if I can draw a trend from your career so far, here's what I think about you: <laughs> is that uh, is that you would like people to have the ability to do more stuff with the things that they own and use, and enable them to understand better what they have and can do. That's my assessment when I look at you, the scope of your career so far. I, I think that that's an extremely important aspect. I mean, I, I, you know, so you have to ask yourself sort of like, you know, when you sort of take your last breath, what have you done for people, right? And, and have you done something that helped other people, right? And so, and so generally speaking, like if I'm making a product, I want it to be more than landfill at the end of the day. If the product can also help nourish a person's soul or their career or their knowledge, then that's an intangible benefit that's important to me, just sort of looking at it from sort of like being a responsible you know, human being and helping other people aspect. I, I know it sounds kind of cheesy and stuff, but, but it, you know, I think no, no, that's what, that's what this podcast is about. Like there's a, <laughs> we have, we, there's a, there's an incredible undercurrent of, um, of generosity and collaboration that is part of what I'm defining as a segment of the new economy is that it, some of it's very commercial. It's like, I'd like to sell a million copies of my record, right? So I can sell it directly and I don't have to go through a label and be constrained, but there's also that I want to build a community that's actually really devoted to this subject and I might be like Jonathan Colton of internet the internet's Jonathan Colton Colton has sold hundreds of thousands of songs but a community has developed that in which he is almost tangential he has these cruises and people go and they're partly there for him but they're really there for each other too and everybody I talked to just about and over the last several months, like collaboration and sharing what they know and what they've learned, even if it's an intensely commercial endeavor, is a critical part of rising everyone's boats, getting level the water up and, and making everyone's life better. And I, I just I love that that's something that like society, culture and commerce can partly encourage that now, maybe in a way that didn't exist before because scarcity was uh, of knowledge or parts or whatever was the driving force. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it seems like we're seeing glimmers of it, glimmerings of it. I, 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 don't, I don't know what the driver is for, for it overall socially, but, but generally speaking, I feel like I'm blessed to be able to be in a position where I can make choices, where I can choose to do things I think are right and good per se and not necessarily just have to worry about putting, you know, food on the table. 
If you're a small business and you're trying to make a website, you know, there's a lot of different courses you could go down. And one is to spend many thousands of dollars working with a designer, but that can often be overkill. There are some sites that offer you great templates, but they're meant more for blogging or extensive sites or e-commerce operations. But if you just want a single page that tells your customers exactly what they need to know about who you are, how to reach you, and have it show up in search engines, go to OnePager. OnePager offers a simple way to use their built-in themes to create a nice-looking page that's easily accessible. They use search engine optimization, so you don't have to figure out the keywords and all that. They handle that for you, so you show up and people can find you. You don't pay anything until you're happy with how it looks, and then plans start at as little as $8 per month. You can put a form on the page so customers can reach you, and you can set up an email list, so you can email your customers directly from OnePager and not have to set up another account at another site to handle that. OnePager is mobile-friendly. You don't have to do different designs for mobile devices and desktop. Let OnePager know that we sent you by following the URL onepagerapp.com slash disruptors. That's O-N-E-P-A-G-E-R-A-P-P dot com slash disruptors. And start designing a page today. Now let's get back to our podcast. It's wonderful. And I'll, I'll do the transition here now because I think after Chumbi, so Chumbi had kind of, a, I guess, about a six-year arc. And I think Chumbi shut down after you'd already left to go on to yeah, other Yeah, things. yeah. I, I had, yeah, that's, ba- that's basically correct. Because I know the company, I think technically they only shut down in 2012 or so, like sold out the last of the stock, whatever group oh, was right. doing yeah, the yeah, last yeah, yeah. bits the, of the, it. The technical wind up, right, yeah, that took forever. <laughs> yeah, but but really, the so the heyday was sort of 2006 to 2009, I guess, right, when there were 10, their models were being released and so forth. So that didn't pan out as a commercial product, but we've talked before, and uh, – you gained an enormous amount of insight during that period into one of the biggest drivers of change in the world, which is China. <laughs> you know, China, and in particular, the electronics and manufacturing industry in China. Can you tell me how things like the Chumbi are made in China? Because I'm completely fascinated by this and completely on the outside. I only know what I read in articles. I don't know people except for you who've gone in and seen the work that's being done at like large-scale factories and the mom-and-pop shops that, that feed these giant factories. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a big question I'm asking. I guess it's like, well, how, how do how what's the difference between something being made in America, like a plastic part that goes into a chumbi, and in China? Uh, the difference between how it might be made in America or how it's made in China, or even I guess I guess one thing we talked about before was the difference between someone in America trying to get something made in China to rather than being in China to work on it. Because you've gone into the shops, you've been there yeah, on yeah. on the manufacturing floor of places. Yeah. In Amer- I guess I guess one of the differences that I, I, I think of is that you know we think here there's like small scale shops can only do small scale work and they're, it's very hard for them to get bigger jobs and there's giant manufacturing operations that have huge contracts. But from what you said, the scale of economy in China is much different the way companies work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From that, yeah. There's there's sort of like, there's so many aspects to this question. I'm just struggling with where to start. One of the things I really wanted to learn when, when entering Chumbi was how to actually mass produce something. Because uh, in all my previous jobs, you know, they were doing really cool technology, but either the, the company didn't work out or the technology didn't get to mass production or it was. So actually, I never had... A product on the market before, and so I was kind of hell bent to go to China and figure out how to build something out there. The cool thing is, is that like basically, once if you're out there to build something, everyone is very like they're they're totally on board. They're like, cool, we, we're looking for someone who wants to build something too, because because you can be a customer, right? So it's actually very easy 
to do business in China when you want to do something. Uh, they all speak the same language, which is shipping product and you know, taking money, <laughs> that sort of thing, right? Um, it, it's really interesting to sort of see the organization of everything. I, I, th I think uh, before I went to China, I had this impression that factories were these huge sort of monoliths with like robotized lines and like required massive amounts of volume to get things going and so on and so forth. The, the reality is, is that factories, there are those, those do exist. Those are the ones you see in the, you know, the great movies and stuff like that. But they, they, they scale all the way down to mom and pop shops, right? Oh, and, yeah, because our image right now is Foxconn, which is like a square mile, yeah. um, you know, with guards all the way, you know, yeah. and that, that's what people picture as China now, I think. Yeah, which, which, I mean, and, and it, that's totally not, that's totally not all that China is. I mean, Foxconn is a, is a suburb of Shenzhen. It's, you know, you have to drive like 30 minutes outside the city to get there. And yeah, it's a, they got, you know, a quarter million people there, wherever it is. But, I mean, Shenzhen City is like, you know, 10 million people or something like that. It's some huge number of people, and, and a lot of them are in other factories and facilities. And it's, you know, sort of an interesting sort of thing you'll see in China. is like you'll walk into uh, this tiny little hole-in-the-wall shop, and, and when you drive through this sort of like the suburbs of China, you'll see like these almost, they look like garages, and on the inside you'll see like a Bridgeport milling machine and a metal cutter and something like that, and that's it, Right. And there'll be, like, a couple guys, like, a guy sitting with his shirt off, another guy, like, smoking outside. <laughs> and that would be a company in China, right? right? That, right. Could, that could actually deliver product at scale, right? Because, like, a metal punching machine can punch out, you know, thousands of parts per hour, right? So you would walk into these little shops, and you would see in the back these boxes that say Foxconn on it, right? And you're like, oh, they're buying parts from Foxconn. No, it's the other way around. These are actually <laughs> suppliers for Foxconn. <laughs> Right, they're actually making, they're stamping stuff out and sticking in these boxes, and they're going up to Foxconn and getting put into into whatever Foxconn does right down the line, right? And a lot of it is is like if you know, it, it's sort of the proof is in the pudding, right? If the product comes out good, the, the delivery's on time, and the quality is there, uh, then you're in business, right? And what does it take to sort of do metal stamping well? I mean, it takes. You know, so a guy who understands machines, some some well refined tools, and then you just run the machine, I mean, and it, basically, it literally takes sheet steel and turns it into money for you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where a lot of that was one of the surprising things to me about China is just that sort of massive mom and pop level of entrepreneurialism that's happening all over the place there, and trying to tap that community, trying to, trying to interface with with these smaller scale manufacturers is really where. My current interest is I'm trying to find it because I think it's very, it's actually very disruptive if you can actually really get in with these people and work on it because all of a sudden the, the tooling costs are lower, the barriers to entry are lower, you don't have to be a big organization, like it didn't have to be 100,000 units to get started, you're now, you're, the, the minimum requirement is now down below 1,000 units and so on and so forth. And you're starting to get in the level where, you know, Kickstarters can go directly to these kinds of guys and actually oh, that's fascinating. go to production, right? Well, we talked about something um, in a, a, a several weeks ago um, that I think is really interesting because it's the uh, one of the most common things in electronics are injection-molded plastics. I mean, there's metal parts are now a big thing, too, for higher-end stuff. But injection-molding is a huge thing for all kinds of industries, and it's a fundamental – you know, you have to mold stuff, and there's a million ways to make it. But this is a common thing that's yeah. used all the time for certain kinds of solid parts. And in America, there are some places that do it, and 
uh, the folks who made the glyph, they, I think, eventually found a factory in North Dakota and visited it that was doing it. But, you know, they live in New York or they lived in New York at the time. Uh, if you're in America and you want to do injection molding in China, you've got this turnaround. You've got to send stuff. You send drawings. The drawings, even the perfect 3D models, don't match precisely what comes out of the mold. Um, yeah. And then things have to be fixed. You were on right where they do injection molding in China. And I remember you said this great image of you had, they, they would hand you hot parts from the mold. How do they do iteration in that environment when you're right standing there with the guys who do tooling? Well, I, I think, I mean, the, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the difference between being in the U S trying to do a mold and being in China to do molds like day and night. I mean, just because there's so much about injection molded plastic, which is about the way the light plays off the surface, the, the, these really subtle flow lines and sort of shrinkage and all these other warping factors that are, uh, you know, there's this huge design of experiment you have to do in terms of t- tuning the machine to get your mold to come out exactly right. And if every time you had to sort of shoot apart and send it back to the United States, get feedback on it back, that, that, that week with the highest priority FedEx can do takes like that, 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 that's a two week loop, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas when I go into the factory and I sit there and the guy hands the part out and I look at it and say, nope, nope, there's too much shrinkage, whatever <laughs> it is, right? That was a 20 second loop. I mean, I mean, it's, it's orders of magnitude difference in time uh, between what it takes to do these kinds of things, right? And so when I'm standing by the machine looking, a lot of times we're, we're looking at the mold cycle time, the pressure, the temperature, a lot of these kinds of things, which can, which controls how fast the plastic flows through the cavity, which then, because one of the problems is that if the plastic cools, uh, it does cool during the during flowing through the mold. If it cools too quickly, when it meets on the other side of the mold, it creates a knit line. You want to get rid of that. And there's all these mm-hmm. kinds of little things you have to worry about. Then then there's this situation where, like, for example, the, the common button. There's all these sort of, like, buttons on these injection-molded things where you ha- they have a little plunger on them. And it has to be just the right size, the right height versus the circuit board and all the other tolerances. And they feel great. And really... I've never designed one perfectly the first time through. The way you do it is you design them too long, right? So the button's too long. And then you go ahead and you oh, sorry, <laughs> you design them too short. And then you go ahead and you subtract steel so the plunger gets longer and longer and longer, right? And so basically you go in there, you, you go in the factory, you touch the button, you say it's, it's not making contact. And you say, you know, remove some steel. They take the thing out. You know, uh, you, you go you go to lunch. They spend a couple hours, sort of like you know, while you're at lunch, a couple hours sort of drilling the hole deeper. They put it back in. They shoot it. You go back to it and say, okay, button feels great, right? You know, or maybe another half millimeter, or one millimeter, whatever it is, right? Being able to close that loop in a matter of like you know hours as opposed to like weeks is just a huge, huge advantage. And in- that's for every change too, right? Because I mean, the way you talk about this, I think, God, if I was doing that and I was in the United States. I could be working for this for um, for months, and assuming they give me the attention too, that even if I've got the contract, and even if I have a relationship with these folks, I'm not there in person. And I know, and we all know, from dealing with, say, like a plumber or someone doing a change to your house, that like if you're not in someone's face, other stuff comes up where someone is in their face, and that might take priority. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. thinking something you're talking about that maybe you had a two week end to end process in China and you're in there maybe even every day is like maybe it's a six month or a two month or a six month process in the United States if you're lucky and you get what yeah. you want at the end. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean like the, it's amazing how fast you know tooling times down in China. I mean if you if you if you're really dialed in with a factory and they like you and and things are going, you, you can you can have first shots within a week or two of having drawings go in and and that's like 
that's amazing that you can get them so quickly. But you know, the, rela- the related problem I've heard from folks on the U.S. side, and I've, there's been articles about this, and I've, I've talked to some folks firsthand recently about it, is they'll contract with a Chinese company, they'll have a good relationship, they'll get sample parts, everything's great, then it goes into production and it's crummy because the company has now outsourced it to uh, the Chinese company is working with some of the subcontractors. You, ter- you, you know, they've done the, the precise work and then they hand it off to other people to make without informing the main. And that's I'm very typical in China. I think not unheard of here, but it would be much more odd for that to happen without a lot more handshaking and contracts and so forth. Is that something you can avoid or something you see happen and you can avoid when you're there too, is that you get to work with the company you think you're working with that's working at the tolerances and level of quality assurance you want? Uh, actually, I actually view that as a feature, not a bug. <laughs> because really what, what you end up with in China is you have a network of specialists, people who are mm-hmm. really, really good at what they do. The situation when the, when the breaks is when people realize this is going on and they say, oh, they found the, you know, oh, what right. happens? They found the wrong specialist. It didn't work, right? But the times when actually the company outsourced it and it went to someone who's better and cheaper at it, no one complains. Right? I see. So you're saying this is so typical that the fact that I know about a couple incidences, these are the, these incidents are probably the, the rare outliers because it's happening all the time. That's right. That's right. Ah, okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and in fact, like, I mean, there's, there's very few companies that are really big enough. Like, I mean, there's like Foxconn and those guys like, who can have everything in-house and do it all in-house. But even Foxconn is, is very competitive internally. They don't just hand business over internally to their own, like, injection molding metal stamping divisions. They have to compete with outside vendors for the, for the internal business. And that, that's how they keep costs down, right? So the fact that it is so fluid and there's so many experts out there and that you can just move stuff left and right is part of the reason why the cost is so competitive. If, if it was all locked down and required handshakes and legalese, then you have these barriers to business, in which case the, the costs start going up and, you know, things are not as cheap anymore. It's, 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 I, I don't know. I think it's still fascinating. As much as China's developed that economy, it's still so unknowable to us here because you have to go down in the trenches. to you know. And again, we're reading – we get mostly our press reports, and the press reports are by necessity limited to where reporters can get to and typically going to the worst things that are happening to document them, not the typical uh, process that's going on right. every day involving you know 500 million people. The, the other side of that is you, know, you go down to the level of these like one guy with his shirt off in a, in a machine shop. The other side of that is the – the, um, massive scale of fabrication of silicon fabrication plants there too and and how much gets made in America Intel is still building multi-billion dollar plants and yep. like IBM has and so forth but the trend over the last 20 plus years is as the cost of each generation of fab plant has gone up like I mean it's practically exponential uh, as they go down smaller smaller die sizes most companies in America uh, except for Intel and IBM are fabless if they design a chip it goes to China or Taiwan or some other companies yeah. um, and maybe to Intel and IBM who compete in certain areas but most of the chips being made for most products in the world are from fabless companies that have to find contractors what's the ecosystem in China around that because there are some very big companies there now making chips. Um, mm. Like I said, that go into everything. It's a good question. I, I have to confess I don't know the exact answer for that. I and I, I've gotten bits and pieces. I haven't tried to fab a chip in China myself, so I haven't dug in. But from the bits and pieces that I've gleaned in conversation, is that a lot of the fab technology originates in Taiwan or places like Singapore, where they've invested a lot of money in it. And I know, in fact, that Taiwan has strict laws on the export of their fab technology to China, in both uh, chips and liquid crystal displays. So it's actually illegal in Taiwan to go ahead and outsource your latest technology to China because 
Taiwanese was afraid that if they did that, they would lose all their jobs and all their business, right? Mm-hmm. So, in, in fact, there's there are a number of barriers in place around this. On the other hand, certainly there are companies in China who can make silicon really cheap. I mean, just unusually cheap. Um, you know, I, I was looking the other day at these self-blinking LEDs. This is LEDs just, just hmm. connect to a battery and they blink by themselves. There's a little chip on the inside, right? These things, you can buy them for less than a penny and a half. Complete package. That's with chip, LED, plastic, pins, everything for a penny and a half. So hmm. someone's making silicon for like, like the price of dirt. Somewhere <laughs> in China, right? I don't know how they're doing it, right? I'm, I'm just like, how do I get my hand on some of these self-blinking chips? Because, you know, I don't know. They, they it'd just be. I just love to get like a vial of them just to say I have them, and it costs me like. <laughs> you know, it just be like a nice sort of like like thing to sort of show, right? Well, this isn't part of your thing too. Is you're you've become a little bit of an investigator as you've tried for the the many different projects you're involved with, like open source. Geiger radiation detectors and uh, video overlay and open open laptop, which we can talk about in a moment here. In the process of doing all that, it seems like you have a very curious mind. And you're, you've been – when you go to China, it seems like you're always like, where did this thing come – the $12 cell phone we should talk about because that's one of like, – like the self-blinking LEDs. You found a $12 cell phone and then, then later like a – was it a $10 one that was even more – it was a ruggedized version? Yeah, yeah, right. These are crazy because no one in the industrialized world could make a tw- could make and then sell a yeah. $12 cell phone with yeah. all the intellectual property rights and the cost of, you know, of all that. So <laughs> when you get something like that, you're, I mean people used to look at uh, – was it Akihabara in Japan? They think that was because we all read – Bill Gibson. We thought that was the place you go to find out what the cutting edge of electronics was, but that's not the case, really. You go to Shenzhen and you walk around and just pick stuff up. Yeah, that's pretty much right. I mean, and, and the, I mean, the great thing about Shenzhen is, like, you know, at two a.m. you can buy a soldering iron. I've tested this because I had a soldering iron. <laughs> I, I could buy one at two a.m. And it's one of the few places in the world where I could casually walk down the street and ask, "Hey." Where can I buy a reel of resistors? And I guarantee you 50% oh my of the people could tell me where it is. This is. This is a place where you go to McDonald's and people are building phones while they eat their burgers you know, in McDonald's, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like insane. Like you literally just walk down the street and like, what, what was that? What, what just happened? Did that really just happen? And you, <laughs> and you, you walk back and there's, there's, there's times when I like, I'll be walking down the street and there's huge like rack of boxes. Like someone was actually asking me today, like, oh, where can I get like RFID readers for cheap, right? I was walking down the street, and this guy had like probably like eight crates on a on a on a dolly, and there 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 was an RFID reader brand. I just followed the guy to his shop. Right? <laughs> his business card says, "All right, now I know where to get RFID readers for cheap." Right? Man, well, this is with a twelve dollar phone, for instance. You, I mean, you picked it apart, and you found there's a uh, the the heart of the thing, the CPU, is something that's sold in like sheets you cut apart, and they're like, I mean, I think you would track them down. Where you could you might be able to buy one for what like two dollars and fifty cents for yeah, something that could power. Cents, yeah. And I know part of the tension there too for you is um, the Arduino and open source uh, open hardware platform that's been widely used and is seen as like a, a incredible mover in creating embeddable design as anyone can do. You're not critical of it, I think, as a platform, but more like in China, you're seeing. You can get devices that are X times more powerful than what's going into the Arduino for the same price, or or that are one eighth or tenth the cost. Right, right, right. And and, and sort of, sort of the question I have is, and, and, and I mean, Arduino has made technology accessible to people who aren't 
like necessarily tech people. They, they made huge contributions, I think, to, to making technology accessible. And it doesn't have to do anything with the microprocessor side. It's all about the community and the, and the software and the IDE. But I, I keep on asking myself, like, what if we could just build something a little more powerful than, like, you know, an 8-bit microcontroller with, like, 2 kilobytes of RAM, right? Because th- that's definitely available out there. And, and you know, having had to source, you know, AVRs in the past, which are the heart of the Arduinos, and, and looking at the price of them, I mean, like, you know, AVRs are really expensive chips for what they do. Like, I'm buying an 8-bit microcontroller for, like, 2 bucks, right? And then and then I, I turn around and I see look inside a cell phone and they have like this thirty two bit ARM on the inside with like you know eight megabytes of built in memory and like it's like a hundred times more powerful yeah hundred times more powerful yeah. and it has radios on the inside and all this stuff and it's like two bucks right <laughs> I kind of look on the left hand I look at the right hand and I go like can we get chocolate and peanut butter together and make something really good here like I mean that's that's sort of that's the level I'm at I don't I don't have an answer I'm just sort of looking at this thing and this thing I mean, like these two have to come together somehow and something good must come out of it but. I promised I, I, yeah. early in the podcast. I promised we'd talk briefly about China and I and intellectual property or IP later. And this is part of the, your supposition. And I, you know, I don't want to put you in a position where you're feeling I'm putting words in your mouth or whatever. But we all know, as a general thing, that Chinese government's view on intellectual property rights uh, are a movable feast. For some companies, some state industries, some favored other partners, there is some ingress, aggressive enforcement. In other cases. There is not. So we know that patents can be both a benefit and a scourge of society <laughs> and sometimes a scourge. They certainly raise the cost for things like making CPUs, using an ARM design where ARM licenses right. its design. You've got to pay ARM for that. For things like making a cell phone, you have a whole patent portfolio that goes along with a lot of the later versions of you know, 3G and 4G yeah. technology. Uh, Bluetooth has patents. Like everything involved in this $12 phone has patents and if you're not paying the patent costs, then maybe a $12 phone is possible. I mean, I'm not, you know, this is the thing. We don't want to accuse anybody of anything, but there has to be a way the thing was sold to you for $12. And we know the price of the pools of patents required for all the things that are in it probably would be more than $12. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question as, as right. it may be. I, I wouldn't. Huh, how do I answer that one? I know I don't want you to. I don't want you to position. Uh, let's not go on the record in which you're, <laughs> which I put you in a position or anything. But we we know that devices. I mean, there's a lot of costs that get larded on in the developed world. Let's say, I mean, China and China is becoming the developed world in a lot of ways too. But let's say in America, you know, something that costs twenty dollars to make and assemble could sell here for two hundred or four hundred dollars. So we know there's this amplification at each stage of middleman, right. and then the final, you know, hundred percent markup when it goes to market. Right, right. So we know there's that factor. And you're close right. to the source there, but but there is still some inexplicable difference between what we know intellectual property should cost and what the phone actually costs. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and you know there there is definitely a lot of, I mean one of the things about intellectual property is that there's always how you say there's no market price for intellectual property. Oh right, right, say, right. Because because like what is the cost of a patent? I mean like you know Monsanto will tell you one thing and then. You know, Intel will tell you another thing, and then you know Richard Stallman will tell you another thing, right? And you know, ev- everyone's going to have like a different sort of you know view on on these kinds of things. And the market also has a different view. There's regional differences, like you know, a patent in one region can cost less or more, right? As mm-hmm. maybe you know, I, I can't speculate whether or not all the patents have been covered on these things, but you know, I mean, what, one actually one of the sort of the weird things is to say you actually are covered 
for patents on something is also not strictly true. So th- this this mm-hmm. was this was an entertaining problem I had in Chumbi. We play MP3 inside of Chumbi, and we wanted to get a license for it. Right? It turns it's out Frau Fraunhofer Institute, I think. Or? Yeah, but but it turns out that Fraunhofer Institute doesn't indemnify you against other people suing you for rights to MP3. Right. So Sisvel right. can sue you as well. Thompson can sue you as well. In fact, <laughs> if you really want to be covered, you have to buy licenses from several people who all claim to have patent rights to pieces of MP3, right? right? And in some cases, there are patent pools. Right, there are some rare cases, like Google agreed to indemnify some people in one case for one of, I don't know, some free patents they're giving away. They agree to some indemnification for it, but right, it's very rare. It's very that, rare to get indemnified. Yeah, because indemnification could be a billion dollars for the yeah. right scale of manufacturer if you, exactly. if you lost. Yeah, and, and, and so you know, I think the, so, sort of the context I, I'm just trying to frame it in is like, to claim that you actually have paid all the royalties on something is also a questionable statement itself because, the, right. you know, you, 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 have you actually read all 8 million patents and confirmed that you don't owe anyone for anything you haven't unintentionally infringed upon and so on? And this for- is a device made in China and sold in China. It does not, it's not being shipped internationally, or it could be, but it's not yeah. being shipped yeah. internationally. Chinese patent law system is not identical. They are not in a harmonized uh, mode. I mean, I know there's some harmonization. There's more going on, but you couldn't say definitively without becoming an expert in Chinese patent law whether, say, the Bluetooth patent pool, as exercised in Sweden and America, would be enforceable in the same way in China. That whether they recognize those patents in the same way, or if the patents were even filed there at a point in which they needed to have been filed. So, or even if like there is a, isn't some pre-existing agreement that allows Bluetooth to be sold at a different price in China. These right. are all yeah, exactly these are all right. The, I don't. This have is to- like the drug the drug market. You know, you can buy a drug for a dollar in India, and it's a hundred dollars exactly. in America, and somehow that makes sense. Right. But right. Uh, so let me let's let's move on to one other project though, because your investigations. So you've been sourcing stuff. You've been working on open source projects, open hardware projects. You've got a bunch of different things going on, and I know that one of the things that's been in the background here for the last you know more than a year is this open laptop, and I I'm fascinated by this because a laptop would seem to be potentially irreducibly complicated for a small team to try to reproduce because we know how many people have been involved in designing. There's so many different components, interaction, battery life, you know, and so you can buy some stuff off the shelf and put one together and you can buy very, very cheap, you know, even the netbook style thing or laptops. Now, what was the motivation behind starting something as, as complicated as an open laptop? Uh, I guess there's a couple of parts to it. I mean, one of it was, I just, I mean, part of it is that it is difficult, right? I mean, I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, learn things I didn't know before, right? And kind of where I left off at Chumbi was building stuff just short of a laptop. We sort of built like these intelligent sort of user terminals, right? But I was always really had a really strong cost cap on what I could spend inside of a Chumbi, right? And so the open laptop project was really like, okay, let's let's not worry about costs, right? Let's build mm-hmm. something that I really want to use, that I could use in my life. And, and I was like, what do I need? And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of missing this kind of open computing platform with these features that I, that I really want to have. And, okay, and let's not worry about, you know, so much about the price or a lot of the other constraints that completely confined me in, you know, when I was working at Chumbi. And, uh, you know, go ahead and build something that I can learn and, and use at the end of the day. 
And you're able to go, I mean, this is that thing we were talking about is that when you're trying to figure out what components to use, you're not, I mean, I'm sure you're pouring through catalogs and, and web pages too. And I know that you've been studying Chinese and, and making and making an effort to get to know that whole community. But in some cases, you're finding stuff as you go around. This is a little bit of a scavenger hunt as well as a, an engineering project. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, I mean, when, when we're looking for like Ethernet uh Fies, right? I was literally just walking around the market looking for people who had fies inside the cap and saying, how much is this? And what's this feature and that sort of I stuff. I love that. And you have a shopping basket trying to get all the bits and pieces together. So, Well, and I can tell this is definitely, if this is still in design, you have two Ethernet ports in the laptop, right? Yes, that's right. Which is, anybody who's watched James Bond's latest film, we all know from from Skyfall, that you want to have two Ethernet ports in there so you can accidentally plug in an unsecure system and destroy your network. But no, but people who are engineers, you want two Ethernet ports because then you can run your laptop as a firewall or do a router, all kinds of other stuff. So it's it's just that one fact. I'm like, ah, somebody who likes engineering is involved in making this because they know why you need two Ethernet ports right. and not just one you know, Wi-Fi card and something. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's so, like in the opposite direction. Like Ultrabooks got rid of Ethernet ports. I'm like, oh yeah, well, I yeah. have two. I have two, right? <laughs> well, and it would be fun to have. I don't know if I mean with the new Wi-Fi systems too, you could do the personal area network and local area network and make the laptop be a hotspot while connected to Wi-Fi too, which would be fun. Yeah. And that's I mean that's what cell phones are doing now. Most of the mobile phones do that. You started this project personal interest challenge, but I know that <laughs> if I go to your December entry in which you kind of talk about this on your blog, there are like 300 comments on it, generated more interest than you thought it would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way more interest. I mean, I when I when I did that blog in December, I was like, ah, you know, I've, I've been working on this. Maybe I'll just talk about it, right? Because it was like, you know, it'd be good to sort of get the you know idea out there and, and just, you know, see what's going on. And then like, I did not at all expect that, that there would be I, I thought like the community of users would be like three, like, <laughs> me, the other guy working on it, and like maybe like some other like you know hardcore nerd guy somewhere <laughs> in the world world right. But yeah, I was I was actually really surprised and then actually very overwhelmed at the sort of reaction to it. I, I you know when when it, when it happened, I just sort of like I went like oh my god, this is like this is too much. I'm just I'm just I actually just kind of shut. Down. I actually haven't even read. All, I mean, when it when it got past a hundred comments, I'm like, this is this is ridiculous. I can't read all of them. I can't respond to them. I can't. It's a full time job then. Suddenly, right? Yeah, and and I was like, look, I can either try to convince the internet, you know, why I'm doing things the way I'm doing things, which never, <laughs> which never never pans out for anybody. You can't convince the internet of anything. The internet's going to do what the internet does, right? Or or you just sort of ignore it and and focus on what you want to do, and that, and that's kind of why I decided to do it. You know, so for six months, the next six months, I just just you know put out another version of it. I just recently put did an update post on it to sort of because I was starting to get emails from people like, is the project dead? Like, you know, are you doing anything on it? I was like, no, it's we're we're very actively working on it. We're just not very actively promoting it, right? I mean it's and, just, and as an open thing, you're gonna release like everything you've learned, all the components all back out. I think there's a GitHub or a Git repository now and a wiki that people can consult and see what's the yeah. state of the project too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and that's it, it, always been there. Just people had to know where to look for it. That's all. This is a very dangerous thing because you know about Chris uh, Anderson and his uh, 3D robotics company, right? Yeah. So you know how it started is he had this idea, gosh, you know, I wonder if I could make my own 
pilotless uh, personal right. uh, whatever. And then it went to uh, from there to, um, well, maybe I'll find a community. Maybe I'll build a community. Maybe we'll build circuit boards. Maybe we'll make circuit boards. Maybe we'll get venture capital. So six years, seven years down the line, now he's a full-time CEO yeah, yeah. of a multi-million dollar. So I'm waiting for the day that the bunny, the open source bunny book is uh, open hardware bunny book is available and you release everything your company does, but you're also manufacturing these things because there's just too much demand to not actually get into the business. Yeah. yeah. I don't, could happen. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I mean, I, I, I think the, the thing that kind of makes me, I mean, the, the, the pilots and the copters, the market totally makes sense. People get it and, and the people who are using it are the right. Like, mm-hmm. The thing that kind of worries me a little bit about making a laptop is a lot of people have expectations for what a laptop should be. And I've literally designed a laptop for me, which means that when other people get it, they're going to be like, it's a little ugly or it's a little weird or it's a little funky and I have to like build some code for it to work, right? <laughs> and I and I consider these all features, right? This is sort of right. like, you know, back in, you know, when there was a joke about Linux back in the day where like, you know, you know, if Linux were a plane, you had to like, you know, put it together and put your seed in and all that sort of stuff, right? This is this is kind of where we're at, right? We, it's not the nice sort of polished open source that you see now in Ubuntu or these kinds of things where they've had like huge user communities working. We're, we're kind of at the level of Linux 0.9, right? You know, with, with the open hardware laptop project and um it's funny that when people find things compelling and it's open then you know sometimes projects go nowhere and then sometimes you get something like like linux or like the drone or like a lot of hardware projects that have come i mean there's i think there's uh we're seeing more and more examples of product projects that started on the hardware side as something modest and maybe a community thing or one person and then just uh you know expanded into into commercial availability it's fascinating well, I mean, if, if people love it, they they want to use it. To, you know, I I think that would be great because you know I'm designing a laptop to be upgraded and, and future proof because I want to have you know cool, great hardware, and so it'll it'll have future revs and stuff as I use it. Um, well, you know, if a billion people want a laptop, uh, you know, you don't have to sell. You only have to sell a few hundred thousand to make it to that <laughs> to a quirky small part of the audience. I know mobile is the way of the future, but I think Apple's shown that people have some really particular demands for those like ultrabook style, MacBook Air style things. Yeah, people yeah. really like those, and the market for those wasn't really anticipated before something like that was created and and the cripe drop. So I'll put my, I'll pre-order my first bunny book um, when this page goes up and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll enjoy it. Bunny, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for staying up uh, almost till 3 a.m. your time to talk to me. <laughs> Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I run hacker time, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, nice to talk to you. Yep, cheers. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash newdisruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Music